welcome back to another episode of Her Two Cents Worth. I'm Mel. And I'm Zoe. And we're two economic students at university still trying to figure it out. We invite Boss Women mentors every episode to share their two cents about how they made it in their career and what their field is about. Today's guest is Danielle Kelly, diversity and inclusion advocate at Herbert Smith Freehills, lawyer, mother, and all-round boss woman. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you so much for coming on to our podcast today. We are so lucky to have you. Thanks, um, Mel and, and Zoe. It's terrific to be here, and it's um, I really commend the the work that you're doing in creating this podcast series and and giving some exposure to to some of the issues facing women um, during you know the COVID times, but also going into the future. I think it's a really important conversation to be had. Thank you for that, Danielle. We asked Danielle onto our podcast because of her wealth of experiences as the head of diversity and inclusion at Herbert Smith Freehills, a global law firm, her background in HR and hiring, and her years as a corporate lawyer before that. Danielle, our first question for you today, please tell us about what you do as the head of diversity and inclusion at Herbert Smith Freehills. Sure. So my role really sits across people, culture and clients. And I say that because um, the objective of, of, of having a role focused on diversity and inclusion is looking at all the ways in which we can shift our culture to being more inclusive. It's frankly a lot more enjoyable to work in an organisation where you feel a deep sense of belonging. Um, when you feel that you belong, you perform better, so there's a very strong correlation between that sense of belonging and higher performance. But also it means that when we work across our diverse client base, we um, have a range of people that can mirror our clients. Um, for example, you know, if it, we have nine offices across Asia, we have a number of offices across Europe, um, the Middle East and Africa. Um, if we were simply, for example, a white Anglo-Celtic partnership working across all of those offices, we're clearly not going to be reflecting the cultural and ethnic background of our, our client base in those offices. So even from that pure sort of business business viewpoint of ensuring that we um, are reflecting our clients, um, being focused on diversity and inclusion is, is really important. And certainly in the time that I've been um, leading our strategy, the conversation has very much shifted over the last 10 years from being one which is primarily focused on gender to one that is much more about inclusion. Um, when I first took on this role back in 2010, it was actually called Women at Freehills, as, as our firm was then known. And, and as that name suggests, we, we were simply looking at ways in which we could retain through to the partnership more women. We were conscious that we had no problem recruiting women into the door, um, but actually retaining them through to the partnership um, was not happening in proportionate numbers. But um, since then, we've gotten a lot better in terms of our stats at partnership level. Um, but since then, we've, we've expanded what we focus on to be much more about inclusion more generally. So we look at ethnicity, we look at um, sexual orientation, we look at disability, 
we look at cognitive diversity and all, as I say, within that overriding umbrella of how do we create a more inclusive environment because we know that when we can include people at the table, we get better business outcomes. Thank you for that introduction, Danielle. Your role is so important at a turbulent time like this in the world when we really need long-term cultural shifts towards inclusion more than ever. We read that you studied commerce and law at university and practised as a solicitor first. How did you fall into the diversity and inclusion space? And can you tell us a little about how your career journey has been shaped between university and now? It, interestingly, the reason that I now am so passionate, I think, about the work that I do um, does stem from the time when I stopped practising law. Um, so if we, could, we go back a number of years, I've got three children. My oldest has just turned 21. But if, when I go back to when I had three very young children and I was looking at, um, you know, returning to work as a corporate lawyer with the same firm, um, I clearly remember the conversation I had with my then supervising partner um, and it was, you know, I remember saying, I just don't know how I'm going to be able to work the way that I was working, which was pretty much 12 hours a day, you know, this is partly probably my own issue, but sort of in the office by 7am and, and just working um, all day and I, and I said, I don't know how I'm going to do that and also be you know, an involved mother. And I remember he said at the time, and it was very well intentioned, but he said at the time, I completely get that. Um, I don't know how women do it. Um, I remember him referencing his own wife um, and how she'd taken a step back in her career when they had their children. And interestingly, the conversation never morphed from that to a conversation around, hang on, your top talent, you've got a great career here, I see you as a future partner, why don't we experiment with different ways of working? Because how you're feeling now, which is that deep sense of overwhelm that young mothers feel when they've got young children, is not going to last forever. You're in a particular point in your life and, uh, you know, acknowledge that. Um, but, you know, your kids will grow up and there'll come a time when, you know, you will want to um, invest in your career again. So how can we set you up for success now so that you're not walking away from the career that you studied so hard for and that you're showing so much promise in? Um, and we could have experimented with working part-time, with working compressed hours. We could have tried three-month experiments or whatever. And, you know, I look back on that and I'm not casting the blame on anyone because that was a time when our partnership actually didn't even allow for people to work less than full-time. I remember one of the male partners saying that working part-time as a partner was an oxymoron. In other words, if you were a partner, that by definition was a 24-7 role. And so there just wasn't the agility in thinking about different ways of working. And so like many other talented women at the time, I, I almost fell out of practising as a law. You asked, uh, you asked me how I fell into DNI. It was more that I fell out of law because I didn't feel that I fitted in the very narrow construct in which sort of success was defined as a lawyer. And when you think about it, 
um, partnerships at the time were overwhelmingly male. Um, and so in a sense, it, it is quite a male career path that the partnership model follows where, you know, those crucial years of building up to partnership happen to coincide with when a lot of women are looking at having starting a family. And so um, I took a break for a while and then um, the then HR director said, look, I, I don't want to lose you from the firm altogether why don't you come and join my team? Um, we were expanding as a firm at the time. We needed to recruit um, experienced lawyers. And so we actually were doing our very first campaign focused on recruiting um, London lawyers and New Zealand lawyers. So I worked on that, having had no training in recruitment or HR. And then that role morphed into um, a role focused on how do we actually get better at retaining talented women in the profession and the, the impetus for that was obviously my background made, made me well suited for that but also we held a, um, a partners conference at the time and one of our senior women partners Stephanie Pursley who is a, a, was a terrific lawyer at the firm um, and she stood up at that partners conference and she put up a, a graph on the screen and all the partners in the room looked at this graph and it showed the number of um, women graduates starting at the firm and the number of male graduates and then it showed the, the numbers at partnership level and there was a directly inverse correlation. So it's hard without showing you the graphic, but let's say at the time we were recruiting around 55, 60% of our graduates were women we only had 16% women at partnership level, which meant that the, you know, 45% men that we were recruiting were making up the overwhelming majority of our partnership. And she said, she put on the top of the graph the question, where are all the women at partnership level? And so I think for the first time, the overwhelmingly male partnership in that room got a sense of the, the, the deep, deep, cost to the business of losing that talent. So recruiting the best and brightest from universities um, at the outset, but then just watching that talent walk out the door over the career life cycle. And so even though, even if you didn't sort of see that as an issue from a social justice or equity viewpoint, I think people for the first time really got a sense of the cost to the business of, of seeing that talent leave. And so the decision was made and we were the first law firm in Australia to do it at that time is to, to um, put money and, and resources into how do we actually improve this position. So that was the sort of the genesis of my transition from um, working as a lawyer into the, the, the culture space. It's disappointing to hear that that was your experience two decades ago. Like, it's not fair that, you know, you basically had to jump ship and almost kind of find a different branch to work in because of these gendered dynamics in the workforce. But just on that note, can you suggest strategies on how the business world can better support women, perhaps like women who are young mothers or working women who really have to juggle being very high up in the corporate world, but also having young children? Like how can those women receive yeah. better support systems? Yeah. I think the, fir the first comment I would make is we need to stop seeing this as a gender issue. While ever we, we see this as a problem that affects women only, it becomes a sideline issue. Um, we need to see this as a systemic 
problem that society as a whole, governments and workplaces need to address. So therefore, for example, when we talk about flexible work at Herbert Smith Freehills, we are very conscious about not talking about flexible work in a gendered way. And so the more men we can have working flexibly or taking parental leave, not maternity leave, but parental leave, the better because, again, it makes this a workplace issue and not a women's issue. So that's the, the first point I'd make is, is, is making it a workplace issue. Um, the, the, the second point I'd make is that um, this is not an issue that will be solved simply by time. The whole pipeline myth of, oh, you know, we just need to wait for talented women to get through into senior roles is clearly debunked because women have been working um, at equal rates to men now for, for a, a generation. And even in my time um, working in the law, it's been around 20 years that we've had um, equal, if not greater numbers of women entering the profession, but we're not seeing it at a partnership level. And so that says to me and to many others that there are deep-rooted issues around unconscious bias um, in, in workplaces. So by that I mean we need to interrogate the way in which we view talent because we are kidding ourselves if we think that our organisations are meritocracies because if they were true meritocracies, how can it be possible that, you know, 70, 80% of leadership roles in organisations are filled by men? Um, if we truly believe it's a meritocracy, we must therefore think that merit is not equally distributed between men and women. And I think any fair-minded person would realise that that cannot be the case. And so we need to address our unconscious biases, and that's hard. Um but we can't shy away from those hard issues. So addressing our unconscious biases means we need to educate ourselves. Um, we need to do training on, on what our unconscious biases might be. We need to, you can do the Harvard Implicit Association test to get a sense of some of your biases. You need to understand some of the techniques for counteracting bias at both a personal level and at a team level and even at an organisational level. Um, so that, that's the second point I'd make. And then the third point is around um, we need to view diversity and inclusion um, and the cultural issues that I've been talking about as very much front and centre of workplace strategy. They can't be seen as something that somebody in HR is responsible for. Um, it needs to be embedded across the business it needs to be measured as much as you can. There are aspects that are more difficult to measure than others, but um, you, you need to keep a keen eye on measurement. And it needs to be, as I said, central to business strategy rather than something separate. Thank you for those comments, Danielle. Speaking about strategies to encourage more inclusivity, can you please share your thoughts about affirmative action and quotas for organisations to have a specific percentage of women or ethnic groups? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I am a strong supporter of targets rather than quotas. Um, so uh, just 
to, to clarify, a quota is obviously a mandatory number. It's, it, it requires, a, you know, affirmative action to achieve that, that number, whereas a target is an aspirational goal that is a public signal that the organisation is committed to achieving a, a, that, that goal. And whether, you not, whether or not you achieve it, the, the impact of a target is that it shines a light on the issue. It signals both internally and externally that the leadership of the organisation considers that achieving that goal is really important. Thirdly, it means that you need to start really focusing on the data and understanding what the pipeline of talent looks like because obviously there's no point in setting a target if you have no sense of what the pipeline looks like. So targets I think are really important. I'm I'm less convinced about quotas, although, you know, there is evidence that quotas obviously by definition really do disrupt the status quo. You look at um, the impact of quotas in Norway and um, it's had a strong impact, although there where the quotas have been around women on board roles, there is evidence that actually it's been a lot of the same women occupying multiple board roles. And so you haven't necessarily achieved that cognitive diversity that is the sort of the end the end game of what, what why we're talking about this. Um, and there's also evidence that there's been a lot of a lot of those women have been wives of male board directors. So it's almost like everyone has been fishing from a similar talent pool. Um, now that's not always the case, but I suppose I'm just flagging that sometimes the headlines that we read around quotas and targets need further investigation before sort of making a decision as to, you know, making your own judgment call as to whether or not you think it's a good thing. Certainly in Norway, it's definitely shifted the conversation, but I think the more important um, social initiative in Norway has been how they've mainstreamed parental leave so that it's no longer seen as something just women take and men only take by exception. It's now very much a something that both mothers and fathers take. Um, so, but but getting back to the, your question around um, targets or quotas for gender and ethnicity. So we, we have a gender target at HSF, which is for 35% of our partnership to be female by May 2023. And May, I say May because that's the, we promote our partners on the 1st of May each year. That target, we currently are sitting at 27%. We actually have the highest proportion of women in partnership of any global law firm currently. Um, and while I'm proud of that, it's still nowhere near proportionate to the underlying population. So our senior associates would be around 60 to 65% female, so it's still nowhere near proportionate. Um, but we've had a quite a dramatic improvement since 2014 when we first set our targets. So we've got over 50% more female partners now compared to when to what we had in 2014 when we set our targets. Um, and that, from a cultural viewpoint, that makes a huge difference to how the organisation feels. Um, when you walk around, when, when we were in the office and you could walk around and you see more women partners and women in leadership roles, it just feels different. And certainly for myself as a woman, it, 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 there is a greater sense of belonging when you see that and a greater sense of 
you are the norm rather than the other, if that makes sense. In relation to ethnicity, I don't think it really makes sense to set an ethnicity target for a global organisation because ethnicity needs to be considered within the context of the local office. So, for example, we have just um, recently set an ethnicity target for black, Asian, minority, ethnic people or BAME um, people, as the, the acronym goes, in our London office. Um, that target would not make sense at all in Australia or in Asia. Um, in Australia, we... We constantly keep ethnic diversity targets under review, but if I'm honest, we are hampered by a lack of really robust data in Australia. It's interesting. In Australia, we are very comfortable um, collecting data around gender, but less comfortable collecting data around ethnicity. And when I say that, when we run surveys at the firm asking people about their ethnicity, we don't have the same participation rate in answering those questions as we do in relation to gender. Whereas in the UK, where there's actually mandatory government reporting on the ethnicity makeup of your organisation, people are just used to giving that information. And so we actually have better data um, in the UK than we do in Australia. Um, if I move to Asia, um, again, you need to think about that in a local context. So we... Um, have internal, um, as in we, we, we haven't, we didn't go out with a media announcement, but internally we have a goal to improve the ethnic diversity of our Hong Kong office, where the majority of our clients in Hong Kong are um, mainland Chinese or um, local Hong Kong businesses, and yet our partnership is still majority white. Um, mainly expat um, British or Australian partners. So we just are not mirroring sufficiently our client base and nor are we mirroring the, the lawyers and the business services people coming through in the office. And so it totally made sense for us to set an internal target around improving that ethnic diversity in the Hong Kong partnership and also in senior business services roles. So it's a, it's a complicated answer, I suppose, but I, I think it's important to understand the differences between a target and a quota, but also to understand the nuances between um, different offices when you're looking at ethnicity. Thank you, Danielle, for all of that insight. You certainly touched on very, very important points there. I just want us to break that down a little bit because there was so much that was said. Um, first of all, congratulations on all the fantastic work that your firm has been doing for diversity. That's really impressive. And to hear that you have the highest rate of hiring for women in the legal industry, that's fantastic. So congratulations on that. Second of all, to follow on on what you said about the merits of a target versus a quota for hiring, I think what you said about the pipeline was incredibly important because employees or people aren't necessarily there to fill these jobs if you know even if there are quotas because of all these structural biases and so what you said about broadening the talent pool and really working structurally to increase um, diversity of perspectives I thought that was incredibly important. The other thing you were saying about diversity and inclusion being central to business I guess the goal there 
is for the future to not even require a diversity and inclusion department. I think we want it to be so firmly embedded in the culture of a firm that there's no longer the need for a diversity and inclusion team. If, it, if it's made redundant, then even even better, right? Like if, it, if the firm is so wholly diverse and inclusive, um, I guess that's the future that we want to see. I think there is definitely more social pressure now placed on firms to be diverse and inclusive with their hiring process. And I think this is partly due to increased awareness of Black Lives Matter nowadays. Um, We've seen on social media recently how a lot of firms have been forced to report on their hiring statistics of women and racial minorities. And so that push for equality is long overdue. But beyond equality, in the workplace, however, we also understand that bringing diverse perspectives to the table does improve productivity, creativity, innovation, and other business or financial outcomes. And so from your perspective, what have you noticed about this improvement at your firm or just in the industry in general? Your question touches on the, I suppose, the correlation between diversity and inclusion and better business outcomes. And that question is key to really embedding DNI across the business because you're spot on that success would be that my role didn't need to exist um, and that my, my team members could find different roles um, because it would just be so much core to our organisation's DNA that, that, that it's just no longer necessary. I think that we're, we're still some way from that, um, as are most organisations. Um, and I'm not always sure that we, we are, we, that we practice the, the link between diversity and inclusion and innovation that is so important. And by that I mean that we may, let me take an example, we may have a partner who is fully bought in to the importance of diversity and inclusion, understands the business case, you know, cognizant of the, you know, there's some terrific research, including the the McKinsey research around the um, actual financial benefit of um, greater gender diversity being around, I don't have it in front of me, but let's say an improvement on the bottom line in terms of financial performance of around 25% and with ethnic diversity, it's even greater. It's around 33%. So they may get all that at an intellectual level and 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 um, see themselves as a supporter. But then put together a legal team for a particular client matter and it not dawn on them that they've just put together a team of basically homogenous people. So whether that be a team of of all men or all women or a team of men and women but who all think very similarly, have similar backgrounds. Um, And so that says to me that they're not really getting at that sort of cellular level, um, you know, deep in your psyche almost, the link between if you get people on your team who think differently, the ultimate outcome is going to be a better outcome. And so I'm often talking about at work the Professor Scott Page's research. He's from the University of Michigan and he talks about how the a team of diverse individuals with, who bring cognitive diversity to the table will outperform a homogenous team of high IQ individuals. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, as a top-tier law firm, 
we pride ourselves on recruiting the, the best and the brightest from law school. You know, we um, obviously pay a lot of attention to academic results. We look also at the full individual in terms of, you know, evidence of emotional intelligence and, um, you know, evidence of community involvement and all of that sort of thing as well. But we are a firm that prides ourselves on our intellectual rigour. And so for me to present that Scott Page research to our partners that said, you know what, if you actually put together a team of people who can bring different perspectives to a complex problem, you're more likely to get a better outcome than simply going to your tried and true team of people who are just like you, that whole, whole sort of affinity bias, because the overlap in your skill sets will be very great. And so each person that you add to that homogenous team is not going to add much more than the last person. Whereas when you put together a team of people who have different perspectives, each incremental person adds something quite different to the overall toolkit of that team. And so it's easy then to sort of understand how that quite mixed ability team is more likely to be able to solve a complex problem than that homogenous team. It's easier to do this with a, a slide, so I hope I've been able to describe it um, verbally. Um, and the key thing here is that I'm talking about complex problems. I, I don't think anyone would argue that if you have a simple problem, there's no problem with 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 having a homogenous a, a team of homogenous people addressing that simple problem. That that that's fine. I'm talking about really complex adaptive problems, adaptive challenges, where having that. Um, group of people who come from quite different backgrounds and can bring that cognitive diversity to the table, that's where it becomes really important. What you've just said really does confirm that there is a huge value for workplace culture and also innovation and creativity from diverse perspectives when we're solving complex problems. Um, you know, instead of simply existing in an echo chamber of sorts or a silo, Danielle, circling back to what you said about how the ethnic makeup needs to be proportionate to the cultural context of each country, there are HSF offices globally. How do you find that the diversity and inclusion culture differs between each country? So, uh, two points I'd make. Sorry, I'll just step back there. So we have an overriding vision that I mentioned, I think, at the beginning, which is to be the leading um, global law firm for our diverse and inclusive culture. If I didn't mention that, I'm mentioning it now for the first time, but that's our overriding vision. But what that looks like at an office level or more broadly at a regional level can be quite different. But if we pair it back to what are we talking about by inclusion, we're talking about that sense of belonging and sense that you're being treated fairly and with respect, I think that cuts across all cultures. But... Then when we look at the lived experience of people in individual offices, it, it will look quite different. So, for example, in our Tokyo office, there's actually, I have been told, no Japanese translation for the word diversity. So it, it, to talk in, in, our, in, in Japan about diversity, people are hearing quite a different message from what we might hear when talking about diversity and inclusion 
in Australia or if we're talking about diversity and inclusion in our Johannesburg office, again, that's going to have a different look and feel from, from what we're talking about in Australia or in our London office or our Belfast office. So I think in order to sort of bring it all together, we just need to keep going back to what is the end game here. And the end game is to be able to tap into the cognitive diversity of people in order to get not, not only better business outcomes, but a greater sense of engagement and therefore higher performance from our people. Um, and what that looks like at a team level will will differ from one team to the next. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but it's it's probably the way I conceptualise it when I think about that. Yes, you did answer our question. Thank you, because um, we definitely agree with you about how one strategy for diversity and inclusion probably won't fit for every single country because they might have different understandings of the nature of um, how it works as well. So thank you for your comments. Clarify as well is that um, it's so important for people like myself and my team operating in the diversity and inclusion space to be constantly curious. So to not act like we always have the answers. Um, I think curiosity is probably as a, a core feature of our roles because um, nobody understands the experience of being in a particular team better than the person in the team. And so our job is to listen um, and to then be able to provide advice and support that is very much takes into account the individual's dynamic and team within which they operate. You did mention earlier that the global standard for DNI across all of your different offices is achieving cognitive diversity. So when do we know that cognitive diversity has been achieved? What's the metric for measuring this? Yeah, th there are a number of, um, of, me of ways of measuring cognitive diversity, none of which are foolproof, I, I would have to say. So um, we... Um, do a, a six-monthly pulse survey of our people that we do through CultureAmp and we, we ask a, a, either the same or a similar set of questions each time so that we can measure progress um, against each of the, the questions. When I look at those questions, there are certain conclusions I can draw in relation to people's sense of inclusion within particular offices or teams or practice groups. Um, but it's certainly not an exact science. Um, we could also do a separate DNI survey. The last one we did was actually two years ago now in 2018, where we did a global DNI audit, where we measured people's sense of inclusion and we cut that um, data by demographic. So we would say, you know, women in this office um, compared to men rate, you know, X percent on 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 various. Um, inclusion scores. We could cut it also by ability, by sexual orientation. Again, this was all anonymous, so we, it just gave us insights into trends. But actually measuring cognitive diversity, I, I would have to be honest and say we don't specifically measure, we don't have the tools at the moment to measure the cognitive diversity of a particular team. Um, we can 
the, the closest we would come is to analysing the results of that survey that I just mentioned, but at a team level. Because I think you can only think about cognitive diversity in the context of the team in which you're looking at the cognitive diversity. I, I don't think it makes so much sense to talk about cognitive diversity across a whole firm. You know, we're a firm of around 5,000 people and, you know, the fact that somebody in, um, I don't know, our Frankfurt office thinks very differently from me is not particularly relevant. So it's more looking at the actual team structure itself. And, yeah, I would have to be honest and say I, I think we, that's an area where we need to get better in terms of um, the analytics around that and the robustness of those analytics. Danielle, the idea of needing to spark a genuine cultural shift towards diversity and inclusion has been the focus of much of our conversation today. To this end, have you observed a lot of tokenism perhaps in the way that companies in general tend to approach this diversity and inclusion? Mm. Yeah, look, I think there is. Um, I'm proud to say that uh, I don't include my own firm in the, in that. Um, I think it's perhaps I have a highly attuned radar to this, but, but for me it's really obvious when the leader of an organisation is speaking about DNI using the bullet points that his com and I said he's there advisedly, but it could be his or her, but the bullet points that the comms team has provided um, that leader because it just doesn't come across as um, authentic or as, as it comes across as something that if they hadn't been provided by the communications team with those key speaking points, they actually wouldn't know what to say. So um, whereas with our CEO, um, I, I, it's just something I don't need to do because when he is interviewed by a journalist or um, the media and the questions go to culture and diversity and inclusion, it's just so much a part of how he thinks and it's probably helped by the fact that he is op an openly gay man and has seen a part of his the leadership shadow that he casts as being able to talk about um, not only LGBTI issues but diversity and inclusion issues more broadly. That's always been a, a key part of his um, the way he steps his role as a leader. Um, but I, I think when organisations talk about DNI in a tokenistic way, I think it can be quite damaging. Um, and the other thing I would say there is, I think language is really important. And even in our own firm, when I will often, in a nice way, um, call out when somebody uses patronising language, particularly with respect to women. So an example there might be, you know, somebody might email and say, oh, we should showcase in, you know, let's say it's a website article, we should showcase our fabulously talented women for this. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Do we talk about our fabulously talented men? No, we don't. Because for me, when you talk about fabulously talented women, it's almost reinforcing the sense that women are the other. And so in, in that sense, reinforcing a concept of otherness and so why can't we just say let's showcase 
some of the women who have been leading in this area or something like that. And, you know, it may seem to some to be just semantics, but for me it's actually quite important that we become cognisant of the subtly patronising ways in which we might talk about women um, or other other, you know, um, minority ethnic people or, um, you know, for example, um, you know, generalising in relation to a certain minority ethnic or, um, you know, category. So, yeah, I think, I think it's important to pay attention to that. Yeah, and I think what you said definitely goes back to just recognising the inherent value of diversity and inclusion to a firm and just having DNI so fully embedded in a firm's culture to the point that there is no other. Um, it really is a method of thinking and like genuinely having people's voices contribute to every step of the decision making process and firm culture. Yeah, and I think clients have a you know have a, a very important role to play here. Many of our clients do. So, for instance. Um, one of my team is currently on secondment at BHP, working with them on their equity and inclusion um, work in the legal team. And I, I think that's a terrific opportunity to collaborate with a client in this area because clients, I, I, I invite all our clients to really lean into the power that they have to require from the, the law firms that they work with more diversity and more evidence that the legal team that is being put forward to that client is a team of talented individuals that is across the whole talent pool and that the partner that's put together that team has not just gone to a narrow section of the talent pool that happens to you know, uh, align with that partner's particular affinity bias. So I think clients, the more they can demand evidence that a law firm is committed, truly committed to diversity and inclusion, the better, um, because that then really demonstrates that link between that focus on DNI and better client outcomes. So for our last question, as an ode to our podcast name, what are your two cents for young women trying to make it in the business world? My answer would be that don't make decisions about your career that will have long-term consequences based on evidence that is actually only short-term. And so it harks back to what I was mentioning earlier on in our conversation when I talked about when I basically fell out of practising law. So... Don't, for example, let's say you've you've got a young baby and you're knee deep in just everything that comes with a young baby. So it's a wonderful time in your life, but it's also an incredibly challenging time. Don't make decisions at that point in time around your career and the investment in your career that you won't be able to reverse once your baby is no longer a baby and no longer interested in you being with them the whole time. You're speaking from the experience of having three teenagers now, that's really important. So, um, um, and the second part of that I think is, is doing exactly what you two are doing. Tap into the wisdom of older women who have been through this. You know, I, it probably didn't occur to me to do that back then. So tap into to that wisdom, um, get different perspectives um, and, and just have that sense of perspective that how you feel now is not how you will always feel 
and that you actually the other point the other point I'd like to make actually is that um, you do need to approach your career with a degree of planning so for example if you think that actually you'd like to ultimately be a CEO or a chief operations officer etc it's going to be incredibly important that from a fairly early stage in your career, you get experience running, being in a profit and loss area. So running a PL account, having a budget that you manage, you know, working directly on the operations side of the business. Because you can't get to 35 and, or 40 or 45 and then say, actually, I really want to do this, but actually you've got no experience in that operational side of the business. So think about your end goal, which may change, and that's totally fine. But when you clarify your end goal at a particular point in time, talk to people about what are the key experiences that you need to get under your belt to set yourself up for ultimately achieving that end goal. And again, that's something I don't feel I was cognizant of um, when I first started out on my career. I think I, I probably had a six or 12 months time horizon. Thank you so much for your time, Danielle. We've learned so much about navigating gendered issues in the corporate world and how companies can create authentic cultural change for diversity and inclusion. You are really an inspiration in leading the influential work you do, and we really can't thank you enough for openly sharing your experiences with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Again, I think, um, I think this is a really important conversation that we're having and I, I wish you every success with this podcast. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks, Danielle. And that was her two cents worth for this episode. For more details, including this episode's transcript, please subscribe to our newsletter and follow our social media in our show notes. If you like this episode, please give our podcast a rating and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Speak to you next time.